Hi, and welcome to the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. I'm your host, editor, Madhuani Christian. I'm joined again today by my friend and colleague, Edward Ned Russell, who covers airlines for Skift and Airline Weekly. Today, we talk about the European Union and the U.S. ending their tariffs on large civil aircraft or state aid for large civil aircraft and how that is really a pointed criticism of China. We also talk about all the, the routes that airlines added during the pandemic and how many will survive now that the travel recovery is underway. And we talk about all the things that are happening up north in Canada. There's a lot of change in Canada. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy the episode. You can reach me at mu at skiff.com. You can reach ned at er at skiff.com. Check us out at airlineweekly.com. Info on how to subscribe is available on the site. We update the site throughout the week and a new issue of Airline Weekly publishes every Monday. Thank you. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey there, Ned Russell. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing today, Madhu? Let's kick off another episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge. So Ned, let's let's kick this off with uh, with um, with a little personal anecdote. You were one of the 2 million people screened by the Transportation Security Administration this past weekend um, as you flew across country, right? That's right, Madhu. I, uh, I took a little trip out to Seattle for the weekend and, and got to, to join the 2 million plus Americans that went there people, shouldn't say Americans, that went through TSA screening checkpoints on Friday. And it was, uh, it's, <laughs> air travel's back. Airports yeah. were busy. Uh, Seattle is, was quite packed. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say it was back to pre-pandemic levels, but it was a busy, yeah, busy airports, full flights. You know, when they say that, you know, IATA likes to say it's a tale of two recoveries, and it really is. Domestic U.S. is back strong, and, and people are out there. Flying for sure, but what was the? Ex- I haven't flown since February of 2020. Um, what, what though? I mean, was it was it more difficult to go through the airport? Where were the choke points that you experienced in the airports you you traveled through? The choke points are what I sort of expected: uh, concessions and uh, lounges. Actually, were the huh. two two issues. You know, TSA on both ends was was fine. I have pre-check and I recommend everyone get pre-check if you're flying in the U.S. and no more than a five minute wait. But at DCA, there were several concessions closed, DCA being Washington National Airport, uh, which was, you know, wasn't uh, disruptive, but it definitely meant I had to wait in line for a coffee for an early flight lo- longer than I, I wanted uh, the one uh, place that served coffee that was open. SeaTac it was actually largely open, which is very impressive. If people have been following it, Seattle Tacoma has been notoriously one of the fastest growing and uh, most congested airports in the U.S. in recent years, just because Delta and Alaska are both uh, growing very rapidly there. You know, they have most of their concessions open. I was really happy to see that, but a number of the lounges were closed. So it was uh, <laughs> for those of us who have lounge access, that can be a bit of an annoyance. But again, it was. Um, those are the choke points. Um, but, you know what? Yeah. One one area that I'm really curious about, and like I said, I haven't been through an airport um, or haven't passed security at an airport since uh, February of last year. Earlier in the pandemic, and even as the pandemic was progressing, there was a lot of concern about the gate hold areas and how to manage crowds. Um, you know, typically these are very in, in the before times. These were very sort of congested areas, and it was kind of a free for all. Lines were never really. People didn't really line up correctly even before, but how, how did they accommodate? How did that, how is that all of that handled with social distancing and the need to sort of keep people apart in these very small areas? 
Well, I hate to disappoint you, Madhu. The free-for-all is back, and I question <laughs> if it ever went away. Uh, when I flew earlier in the pandemic, uh, when, when things were, there were more, more, when there was more concern, I did notice gate agents making announcements like, please wait until your group is called, or please wait, you know, we're bordering from these rows, please wait till we call your rows. There were those announcements. There were none of those on this huh. trip. It was, uh, it was literally a free-for-all. Full flights, the hold rooms are packed. It's as you try to find space if you can, and 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 yeah. But it really, I mean, I don't think I sat down in either hold room, either end, just because there really wasn't any anywhere unless you wanted to be next to your cl- next closest neighbor. Huh. Um, the good thing was his mask usage uh, was you know at the airports I passed through, Washington and D.C. and Seattle, like very high. But no, there was in the hold rooms there was really no semblance of uh, of, of social distancing. You did scan huh. your own ticket, so they didn't take your ticket. But that was fine. all right. Well, that is that is a, that's a positive change. So we have a lot of news to get to today, Ned. Um, much as I'd love to talk about your trip to Seattle, we 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 actually have some news to talk about. Yes, um, the, it was, it's uh, exciting for you, especially uh, 16, 17 years on. You've been covering this World Trade uh, Organization dispute between Airbus and Boeing. Uh, why don't you tell us what happened, Madhu? Yeah, I started covering the story at the age of three. So um, it was, <laughs> I mean, it kind of feels like that. Actually, it was one of the first big stories that I ever covered when I entered air- aviation journalism. And that is the World Trade Organization dispute between the European Union and the U.S. over state aid for large civil aircraft. Which is a mouthful, but in other words, it comes to a, Boeing, a fight between Boeing and Airbus about um, launch aid for the A350 and 380 programs for Airbus, EU aid to Airbus, and US aid for the 787 and um, 787 program, even stretching back to the 747 program. Now, as I said, I've been covering this for 16 years. There was a lot of reference to, to uh, in both cases, DS-316 and DS-365, as I recall, um, about... Uh, how the government, the U.S. government funded the seven or seven forty seven program. You were there, right, Madhu, covering the seven four seven launch, right? I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that, Ned. I was not. <laughs> uh, but uh, but uh, it, you know, the, so the, so anyway, that's a little bit of the background. The bit the the news today. That emerged was the White House and the and uh, president of the European uh, Union, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, have said that they will neither side will impose tariffs on uh, related to these cases. Um, so that that's big. I mean, the the that is really big. Um, <clears throat> what uh, what's interesting about that is so when the the two cases were sort of settled, the U.S. Get, earned the right to um, Impose tariffs on seven and a half billion dollars worth of European Union goods, and the EU earned the right to impose tariffs on four billion dollars of U.S. goods. And on, what's interesting is, you know, that they, they these don't have to be tariffs on aircraft. They can be, air, in fact, the EU had imposed tariffs on U.S. wine and chocolate and exercise equipment. It's just goods. So, so you're um, telling me Europeans couldn't get their Peloton bikes? Uh, no, there there were tariffs. Actually, there there were tariffs on on things like Peloton bikes. So so yes, adding to the delays, Europeans had to pay. You know, uh, we waited something like six, almost three months for a Peloton, but Europeans on top of that wait had to uh, had had a tariff that they had to pay. Um, so that those those tariffs are going away by mutual agreement. So that that is interesting. The two sides have also said they're going to. Um, 
establish a working group to study any other state aid issues that might come up with large civil aircraft and agree they will agree upon a set of uh, uh, criteria for to level the playing field for workers on both sides of the Atlantic on large civil aircraft program. But the crux of it is, Ned, the crux here is countering China. Okay, interesting. Uh, please tell me more about that. Uh, so as, as we all know, China is uh, developing a civil aviation program and right now has, you know, regional narrow body jets that are on either under development or being deployed. Uh, but it's no secret that China wants to develop a wide body aircraft to, um, to break up the duopoly between Airbus and Boeing. Um, so the EU and the U S in their agreement today have said, you know, they've, the reason they came to this agreement was to counter the China, the growing Chinese threat in this market and to ensure that China is competitive if as it develops um a large civil aircraft. In other words, that the that they don't undercut the market through um unfair trade and, and labor practices. So I mean it's you know, there's always an aviation angle, our friend John Ostrar likes to say, and this is this is specifically aviation, but what I found interesting is, you know, the airline aviation is aerospace has gotten caught up between this trade route between the West and China in a couple of ways. This is one way. The other is um, that the 737 MAX hasn't been recertified by China. And who knows when that'll happen. It's Stephen Udvarhazi, the, um, the uh, head of Air Lease Corp, the man who basically invented um, aircraft leasing said just today that before the pandemic or before the max grounding the uh, chinese carriers had ordered the largest number of maxes right and i, I was going to say i mean i thought uh, i doubt his comments i was going to say i think china is the largest single chinese airline the largest single customer base yeah. for for the max yeah and they're all grounded still because the um <clears throat> the max is recertified even though 170 jurisdictions around the country, 170 regula regulators around the world, pardon me, have recertified the MAX, but China has not. Neither is Russia. And this has much more to do with geopolitics than it does with the any concerns about the safety of the aircraft. So now, you know, this is two really interesting ways how airframers have gotten caught in this scuffle, this trade scuffle between China and the West and, and the various scuffles. It's not trade, but the various sort of humanitarian concerns and political concerns with Russia and the West. For sure. You've got to wonder with um, Biden sitting down with Putin uh, later this week, uh, we're recording on Tuesday, and then you, know, you have to Biden will certainly eventually meet with Xi uh, if uh, some of these these trade spats between uh, these geopolitic issues that are keeping the max grounded in Russia and China are ease somewhat, but it's uh, it's hard to say. I know there are other topics, plenty of other topics that they will discuss at their coming meetings. So yeah, I think they have a lot to talk about. But I mean, this is you know billions and billions of dollars of of assets are sitting on the ground that Chinese carriers can't use, and and Chinese airlines are, according to Udvar Hazi, are pretty eager to get their hands on the Max again. Um, so. It's a shame when geopolitics gets in the way of commercial interests now. I know that uh, you know, the U.S. has done that, too, in, in its history. But at the same time, it's if the airlines want the planes, they should be, you know, with so many regulators certifying it, you would hope that they can uh, come to an agreement and get those planes back in the air sooner rather than later. And I'd uh, say the same whether it was a Airbus or a Boeing aircraft. It's just uh, it's, it's a shame to see them still parked, like you said, billions uh of dollars of assets. Absolutely. But the end of this, this WTO spat is pretty interesting and will result in cheaper chocolate for us in the U.S. 
and Peloton bikes for Europeans. In, in Europe, yes. Cheaper Pelotons in Europe. Um, <laughs> now, let's see if... Uh, if chocolate manufacturers actually lower their prices, or if they, or if they, or they've gotten us used to paying a certain amount, that's for sure. Why not pocket that? Right, big chocolate, <laughs> big chocolate out to get us. <laughs> All right, and you know, let's. So we talk about the WTO. There's a lot of interesting things going on north of the U.S. border too, right, Ned? That's right. Air Canada, or sorry, Canada in general, is um, finally begun uh, its process towards reopening, as we've seen. Uh, it doesn't look like the U.S.-Canadian border will open in June, but it, it is coming. Uh, and Canadian carriers have started restarting flights. Uh, Transat has started to, uh, has unveiled a new uh, business plan somewhat, though the, you, you can tell us a bit more about that, Madhu. Uh, it's a uh, it's good to see the the Great White North is finally opening up again and starting yeah, to move. Transat, I mean, really took me a little bit by surprise because, uh, first of all, uh, for those of you who don't know, Transat has suspended all flying in January when Canada imposed these really strict restrictions on entry into Canada or re-entry into Canada. Um, it plans to start flying in July, at the end of July again but it it'll be a different airline it's no longer going to be focused on tour operators and and package holidays and that will remain a component ned but it's not going to be the focus anymore instead that's they're going the, to oh, go ahead no 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 go on go on <laughs> tell me <laughs> i would say that's the most interesting piece of it because transit has typically catered to point to point leisure traffic and they're not they're essentially adapting the model that westjet and air canada have uh, yeah. up and spoke they're going to be the third hub and spoke carrier in canada they're going to focus on their hubs in um in Montreal and Quebec City and um, and in Ontario and f- sort of funnel passengers from Western Canada through their hubs in Eastern Canada to Europe and elsewhere. Um, I mean, it makes some sense considering that if you look at the market now, Air Canada, of course, is Toronto, is, is sort of every major city, but then WestJet strengths are Calgary, Vancouver, Toronto. And, right. you know, Montreal is... I say Canada's second largest city. Uh, our Canadian listeners can correct us on that, but you know they they definitely if, if if Calgary can support two hub carriers, why can't Montreal? Right. Um, but I do wonder. I mean, the Canadian market has always been a sort of two airline, two national airline marketplace. So it makes you wonder if if it can support a third. Yeah. Well, you know, CEO the new CEO of Transat, Anik Garrard, um, sort of hinted that they might go after um, the sort of the the Air Canada model of funneling passengers from the U.S. over their hubs in Montreal and Quebec to um, to Europe, and as as those of you have done that in Toronto for Air Canada it's, or Van, um, in Vancouver with Air Canada going to Asia, it's a very easy easy connection, and you can pre clear on your way back in in the Canadian. Um, Canadian airports, so you don't have to go through customs when you land in the U.S. Uh, so it, it sounds like Transat might be trying to do, capture some of that market too, because Gerard said uh, the company is focused on transborder to Europe. So um, yeah, there's there's going to be a second carrier doing that. I don't think WestJet I, does, but um, yeah, I really I wonder. Well, WestJet, of course, is very small to Europe. And they yes. similarly this week announced new service to Amsterdam, so that it will be their third european destination depending on how you define it right now they only serve london and paris though pre-pandemic they serve three other cities so it could be fifth third or or sixth and fifth but anyway uh i'm curious where transat plans to go cross border um you know they currently serve pretty much just leisure destinations uh, in the southern part of the u.s 
Does this mean that they could be flying to Chicago and Washington and New York and trying to capture some of those travelers? It's it's an interesting play. Yeah, it is. It's re- it's it's fascinating to watch them that you know as they come back in July whether how their network will change. Also interesting Ned is that you know Transat was had just just a few years ago was touting its vertically integrated travel model that it was package tours that included hotels and you know Everything that you think of with a package tour, and they were investing heavily in the hotel space. So it, you know you could it was a one stop shop to get your entire vacation. On May twentieth, apparently they dis- discontinued their hotel business and will no longer invest in it. So that's so they really are you know in this business of transformation. Meanwhile, there's my favorite, and Ned, you can tell us about that. Our our little raccoon friend Porter. Porter Airlines remains uh, suspended. They've uh, canceled flights through mid July at this point, right, Madhu? Um, and you know we're going on a year and three months, and I think there's still a lot of questions over whether they will ever restart at this point. Mm. You know they've given no indication of restart plans as a privately held company. They don't have to have earnings calls. You know it's it it. Yeah, it's it's interesting to watch, but you know they really had a good niche there at Toronto's uh, Billy Bishop Airport, which is close to downtown. For those not familiar with, uh, it's right next to downtown. Really, you can right, walk yeah. there <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, it's yeah, I, it's interesting to watch how that. Though I imagine if they did go away, it's a market that at least domestically, uh, I'm sure someone would move to fill that vacuum, whether it's Air Canada or WestJet. But well, it sounds like Transat is. Um is eyeing that market and the transporter the market would buy Q400s to serve uh to serve Billy Bishop. Well, not Billy Bishop, but Transat is definitely looking at capturing more more flows over Toronto. Ah, okay, yes. Yeah, so of course Toronto being Canada's largest city has plenty of opportunities. One would hope for everybody. And we are back. Ned, so let's uh Let's talk now about some of the massive um, network changes that that uh, we've seen in recent days. I mean, you just wrote this great story about uh, JetBlue, which launched a whole whole bunch of routes at the beginning of the pandemic, and now they're they're scaling that back. Tell us more. Yeah, so JetBlue uh, sort of surprised a lot of people. They were one of the early ones last year to to unveil a lot of new routes, sort of outside of their core bases: New York, Boston, Fort Lauderdale. Uh, they they've added nine. I counted uh, ninety new routes last year based on their releases. Ninety. Uh, ninety. Wow. Uh, you know, not all daily. I mean, twenty right. two or three times a week. And of those, they have now pulled at least twenty three. You know, there's you know, nothing's for sure in, in uh, network planning, really, but 23, which represents about a quarter of those routes. And so, you know, I spoke to I spoke to spokesperson for JetBlue and, you know, they really talked, you know, touted the return of travelers in the U.S. It's back to more sort of normal uh, network patterns, which means there's sort of refocusing on Boston and New York. Uh, but still, there's some interesting uh, takeaways from the changes. The, you know, Newark, where they made Newark and Los Angeles, where they made uh, big pushes during the pandemic. They used you know, the availability of gates in LA and sort of landing slots. Newark's not slot controlled, but it effectively is to expand there and and you know built up large bases. And those are largely staying intact. Huh. You know, they're suspending one route maybe at each of those airports, and you know that that shows they, those were good bits for them. 
some places that were a little bit more strategic and most in the industry know that 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 would mean money losing uh-huh. like Raleigh, Durham and Philadelphia, where they also added a lot of routes are seeing a lot of cuts uh, of the 14 new routes added in, in those two cities, nine are going away. So it's back to sort of pre yeah, pre crisis uh, plans there. So it's, it's interesting. You know, I spoke to a number of people on this and everyone says, you know, no one expected all of JetBlue's routes to stick around. That's true. And, and I think, Throughout this pandemic, we've known some many of the changes that are made are not going to occur. But it is pretty good. It's a pretty good track record to have more than seventy percent of these new routes end up staying permanent. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say permanently. We'll see. But that is pretty good. So it's there's a lot of shift. It's it's back to normal, but not at the same time. You know, and then we have Spirit Airlines in South Florida going well, down. To, let's oh, hit yeah. pause there. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wanted to ask you a question about the JetBlue. So is is part of is do they just need the lift for their their traditional routes? Is that why they're scaling some of these um these basically, new, new routes back? I mean, basically, that's what what it looks like. They you know they have actually grown their fleet during the past year. They made no retirements. Uh, the fleet's up about 10, 10 hulls compared to the end of twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you're going to resume your old schedule, you need to pull those planes from somewhere. So you know, they're pulling back on some of these new strategic routes that they added. The other thing is the new Northeast Alliance with American Airlines. And the first of those routes start launching on July 1st. And notably, a lot of these, uh, I like to call them pandemic routes, end June 30th. So, you know, there's definitely a shift there. And then, of course, the Northeast Alliance, those routes launch through next summer. So it looks like they're sort of... um, they're feeding those those new markets that they consider much more important. And Northeast Alliance's new service from Boston and New York, two of JetBlue strongholds, um, look far more important to the airline than Raleigh, Durham, or Philly. So, right. Yeah. Well, I cut you off just as you were starting on Spirit. So, so what what's going on there? I mean, we know they well, they made some big changes. <laughs> yeah. Spirit has is is growing out of the crisis. They're already back to about pre pandemic ASMs. And they are based in Fort Lauderdale. They have a large, you know, it's, I want to say it's their largest airport in their network, uh, not 100% on it, but they just passed about 100 daily departures there, which, which is big for them. They're a ULCC, low frequency, a lot of routes. They plan to go into Miami, just down the road from, from Fort Lauderdale, with, uh, in a big way, with 30 new routes beginning this fall. Hmm. So, you know, I spoke to them, and then the way they present it is, you know, we've maxed out in Fort Lauderdale, uh, you know, 100 flights. The airport does have limited growth, and Southwest and JetBlue have bases there. So right. I, I understand that, and and they think Miami is the next best way to keep expanding in South Florida. What they told me is, you know, we had the option of adding a fourth Chicago uh, from Fort Lauderdale or add a new Miami Chicago, and, and we would like to do Miami Chicago because that, uh, kind of, yeah. Well, Miami's made some changes itself, right? And that's why more low-cost carriers are going there. It has. You know, Spirit said that you know, Miami has re uh, has sort of changed the way they charge airlines to more of a preferred carrier model for for gate access, and that's why you've seen this. You know, Frontier has established a base there. JetBlue and Southwest went in in the past year. Spirit's going in, and that's what Spirit says makes the airport more. Affordable, though I've spoken to a few people um, that are familiar with airports, and it's interesting because generally ULCCs don't like preferred, uh, you know, fee model for gates. But 
based on what the spirit's telling me, they, they find they find it attractive and make it work for their model. So it's it's an interesting move. Uh, Miami has long been the high cost airport of South Florida, right. fortress hub from for American Airlines, and, and they're not going anywhere. So it's interesting to see all this new competition. Yeah, well, it's a uh, never a dull moment here. And then it's it, it is you know it is interesting to hear you talk about and explain the 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 the, the changes that airlines are making after just just going a little nuts early in the pandemic. And it makes, you know, they had to grab whatever travelers there were, right? That's for sure. I feel like JetBlue's routes really stood out on that that idea that they were kind of grabbing whatever travelers were out there and trying to make some money during during the you know, worst of the crisis. And now we're getting back to more you know, long-term network plays, whether that's you know JetBlue returning to some of its old markets as well as the Northeast Alliance. Uh, Spirit has always has been a growth airline for years and you know Miami sort of just fits their strategy. I don't think anyone said thought they could grow in Fort Lauderdale forever. You know, it's a lot of airlines doing that. And United is of course United's added a bunch of routes and I think the question is going to be uh, whether they come back next summer because their point to point routes are all seasonal. So uh, but it's uh yeah, it's sort of a it's almost back to uh it's sort of back to normal, which is surprising. Yeah. So then we have the play like Southwest, which has added 18 new cities and counting since the pandemic began. 18. And they think they say that's all uh, long term growth. So, oh, yeah, their latest edition is Syracuse, New York. Right. Three flights to Baltimore. I I like to think back to Piedmont Airlines, which added Syracuse, <laughs> Baltimore in 1986 with their new Baltimore hub. So it's, it's a bit like Southwest or Southwest a bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well. We got to leave it there, and, and and you know I can I can safely say I was alive and around in 1986. I was too, Madu. <laughs> yeah, well, I was not around when the 747 was being developed. <laughs> no matter what Ned thinks. So on that note, you can you can send hate mail to Ned at erskiff.com. You can send uh, you can send any feedback to me at mu at skiff.com. We'd love to hear from you. Check us out airlineweekly.com. A new a new issue of the publication drops every Monday, and we update the site throughout the week. Information for on how to subscribe is available at airlineweekly.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope to you join us again next week. Goodbye. Thanks, Madhu. Bye, Ned. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Should you have comments or questions, drop editor Madhu Unikrishnan a note at mu at skiff.com. Of course, check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week. <laughs>